Hey everyone, welcome to the Midpoint. Have you ever met a really nasty environmental hater, like somebody who dumps angel oil into the forest and then throws some old batteries alongside them? Probably not, because nobody really wants to actively harm the environment, right? But despite our best intentions, it, we often find it also very difficult to consistently protect the environment, to take consistent decisions that are not just convenient or benefiting us, but also prioritizes um, our climate-friendly lifestyle. How can we change those habits? How can we change those decisions? Um, I'm super excited to actually ask an expert on that, Thomas Brudermann. He's the author of The Art of the Excuse. He's also an associate professor at Karl Franz Universität in Graz in Austria. And he's analyzed sort of the most common bogus arguments, sort of the most common excuses that keep us from living a climate-friendly lifestyle. Hurt sometimes to recognize those, honestly, but he also makes us wiser. So I thought it was a great opportunity to invite him to tell us sort of what is really, really bad and what is kind of okay, what's really good. And then you can all take your own decisions on what, you know, sort of fits your situation best. So, um, yeah, let's welcome Thomas and enjoy the show. Welcome, Thomas. Welcome to the Midpoint. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you. Um, tell us a little bit about sort of sustainable choices. Why, why do you? Why? Why is it so hard for us to take um, a good decision for the environment? Yeah, I think this always comes down to a mix of factors. Some of them relate to human nature, to our psychology, so to say. Some of them also relate to the environment in which we find ourselves in. And by environment, I mean the decision environment, like the context and the structures that are in place. And many of these structures make it indeed difficult for us to behave in a climate-friendly or pro-environmental way. Can you give us an example for, for that? Yeah, um, one example would be if I live on the countryside and public mm -hmm. transport options are just not available or just are scarcely available, then of course I will very often use a car, which we know is not climate-friendly. But then this choice on a daily basis does not necessarily mean that I'm yeah, not aware of environmental problems and climate change. It's just that I don't really have other options in the situation in which I find myself in. But then it's not only the structure, it's not only the environment. Some other factors also relate, as I said, to human nature. This could be just convenience, it could be habits, so or it could be also that we just have difficulties to comprehend, to grasp the entire complexity of the challenges that climate change brings for us. Mm. For me, one of, so whenever I um, think about sort of the absurdity of decision making for my own um, is when I take my car and drive to the gym. That's I think for me as an example, it's like the, stu the most stupid decision. Like I'm going to the gym, but I'm moving there. By I mean, why, why don't I run there? Why don't I take a bicycle? So about a year ago, I sold my car. My my, my wife kept hers and sort of used hers as for all the family matters, driving our kids, etc. But for me, that 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 changed a lot. By I, only by selling it, I kind of forced myself to take the bicycle, and now I'm taking the bicycle to the gym. Um, yep. What you did here is what he meant in terms of like creating that structure for me to take mm -hmm. the, it's like take away the decision that I I mean obviously it's a, it's a convenient choice right especially when it's raining outside and you you want to go to the warm cozy gym uh, but it's just five minutes away by bicycle so why not yeah what you did here is you basically changed the decision context right if you uh -huh. basically I mean of course you always can say yeah I have no choice and the car is here but if the car is not here 
and this is this is your choice, right? It's your decision. Then you also change the the structure of, of your decision situations, and then mm -hmm. suddenly it's possible to go by bike or to run. And I, by the way, had a very similar experience when my car broke down last year. My twenty five year old small car. Um, yeah, suddenly it was not an option to drive to the tennis court when the weather was not so good. Yeah, I had mm -hmm. to take the bike, and actually I loved it. Mm -hmm. oh, that's perfect. Yeah, is is um, so is, is can we maybe start there when it comes to 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 excuses? Do you do you feel like when is it is mainly our oh so do we do we have to for everybody who wants to change everybody wants to do more for the environment? Is that what we should be looking at first? Sort of what kind of decision we're sort of what kind of systems we create to take the easy decision or is this something that you think people will just not do because it's not practical like it's, it's odd hurdles too high to change that um for themselves i think it's it's more difficult to make a conscious climate-friendly choice every day it's easy i mean also it's not totally easy right uh, it requires some effort but you don't need this effort every day if you try to design situations in which the climate-friendly option is, is just the easier one. Yeah, so, so we are here already in the solutions part, right? Uh, mm -hmm. We need structures, we need a decision context that facilitate climate-friendly behaviors. And then we always tend to say, yeah, but politicians need to do that and uh, businesses need to do that, which I agree to. But it's not like only politicians and businesses have power over our lives. We also have a certain power ourselves. And we also, mm -hmm. many of us at least, have the chance to design their own decision situations. Well, let's start, let's start with, with, uh, with the common excuses then. What, what do you see or sort of what kind of different types of consumer or um, I don't know how to call that sort of um, behavior do you see for taking more, sort of for when, when it comes to sustainable decisions? Yeah, I mean, one kind of excuse to see. Yeah, it, it really depends on uh, with whom you talk to, right? I mean, mm -hmm. with uh, these more eco-minded people. I mean, we have this problem, right? There's, there's a lot of uh, young people who are actually green-minded, but then they still fly a lot. They board a lot of planes, and this, of course, is not consistent. We know that flying is very, very bad for environment and climate, mm -hmm. but still. We normally manage to justify if we board a plane. We find an excuse for ourselves, also for others. And one that I hear a lot is, I'm doing enough otherwise. I'm uh -huh. so environment friendly. I, I do the separation of waste. I cycle to work. I switch off the lights when I leave the room. My heating is down to 19 degrees in winter. I don't use air conditioning. Right? And then we mm -hmm. use all these things that we do. As a justification for other things that we do not do. The problem, however, is that very often uh, something like flying is just so much more harmful than all the other things combined. Right? So, so we kind of try to license, we call this moral licensing, right? Try to license uh, the bad behavior with the good behaviors. But if mm. you look at the facts, it just doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. I think I think that's a graph also in your book, and I really like that sort of how you weigh things against each mm. other. Um, another graph, um, maybe we can show that um, sort of as part of the video, and otherwise we'll put it in the show notes. Is you you kind of show the um, I think it's a sort of two two axes. You should basically show mm. how difficult it is to to remove certain things, but also how the impact is to the environment and. You just mentioned flying. Is is that the absolute most most um, 
impactful thing that I can do as a person to just uh, if I, if I stopped flying tomorrow? Yeah, as an individual person, mm, flying maybe not private jet even <laughs> is the worst thing you uh -huh. can do. Yeah, you could also have a super yacht. This is also very bad, but. Uh, Flying is one of the most harmful uh, things you can do. And uh, just maybe to you know, put this into perspective, what if I fly from Zurich to Dublin? How much mm -hmm. CO2 equivalence do I emit? And I talk here about CO2 equivalence because we have mm -hmm. a bunch of emissions and then we try to convert this into CO2. And for this flight from Zurich to Dublin and back, this will, I mean, I, I did not check the exact number, but it will be approximately one ton of CO2 equivalent per person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so per person. Per person. Uh, yeah, per person. Oh, so not, like, not I'm per not going to be alone on that plane, right? <laughs> yes. It, I mean, it of course depends on the plane. It depends how many people on there. So, so we have rough numbers here. But this is mm -hmm. one ton of CO2. And what's uh, CO2 equivalent? And if we now look at other behaviors, like uh, switching off the light, reducing heating, these are minimal behaviors, right? Uh, in comparison, right? Uh, if we switch, if we switch on all lights in our house for the entire year, we will not end up with uh, one ton of CO2. Mm -hmm. yeah, but still we mm -hmm. use this uh, different impact behaviors, so low impact behaviors and uh, high impact behaviors, and we compare them and we license the high impact behaviors with the low impact behaviors. Right. I also saw cruise ships is on that graph. Um, I hate cruises. Sorry to um, make a personal statement here <laughs> that way, but... I've been on one once or as a child a few times, but I just cannot stand the experience as a sort of uh, as a travel experience. But what makes what makes cruise ships so bad as well? Yeah, I mean, cruise ships, um, I think many of them go with an electric engine, which is good. Uh, the problem is that to uh, to run this engine, they have more or less a coal power plant on board or something mm -hmm. else that is very dirty. And here we are not only talking about CO2 emissions. There's also other emissions that are, are really harmful like uh, sulfur oxide or uh, NO2 uh, and all kinds of emissions. So these are just very big uh, dirt producing things, monstrosities, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you may. Yeah, yeah. But you, you, you basically listed it also as an easy decision not to take cruises, whereas flying mm -hmm. is a lot more, uh, is a lot more difficult. Yeah, uh, well, and, I, and I see that, right? Um, with, with flying, I mean, can we talk about business trips as well? I mean, for me, mm -hmm. you know, taking taking two trips a year for a vacation by plane and then another couple where I say like, oh, sorry, I mean, I, I need to fly there because it's business. They asked me to go. Like, how, how do you put that into context? Is that okay to fly for, for, for your business? <laughs> I mean, maybe I just comment briefly on this difficulty thing. Of course, this is subjective, yeah, sure. right? Please do. Please so taking uh, no cruises, I mean, for me, it's uh, very easy. Uh, taking no flights for many people is also very easy. We always forget that 80% of world population have never boarded an airplane. And even mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Central European countries, over one third of people have never flown. And it's just a small group that flies a lot. Uh, around 15%, I think it is, that fly one, more than once per year. But then, of course, there are business flights, there are holiday flights, uh, and we are having an easier time in excusing the business flights because they are not our fault. They are somebody mm -hmm. else's mm -hmm. fault. Yeah, I uh, saw a statistic and that struck me because I, th I feel like I wanted to ask you about sort of the CO2 output in a global context of everything else as well, sort of when it comes to flying. Yeah. Um, I think flying is just like 2 to 3% of overall CO2 emissions. But I've learned recently that, for example, in Switzerland, that goes up to 20% because we fly 
a lot more, or a lot more often, as you say, as the rest of the world. So here in Switzerland, it shouldn't be an excuse to say like, oh, you know, it's just a small part. We, there's other things to fix, like the industry, the cars, um, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, do you think that, fl- so when it really just comes to flying, also in your book, you're, are you addressing sort of a first world kind of excuse in, in that regard? So that we should be really a lot more aware of that flying or is it, can't, do you think you could, you know, the industry and everything else should be fixed first for sure, because it's so hard to replace the flight and to, to, to change people's decision-making also, because it's a hard decision against flying. I think we need to fix a lot of things and we should not uh, basically play them out against each other. Uh, yeah. I think we need to reduce air travel, but we also need to uh, work on emissions from industry, from food production, from energy generation. Yeah, we have a lot of challenges and it's not like we can afford that we only tackle one of them and then postpone mm-hmm. the other ones. I think we need to do a lot of things and with flying, it's really, I mean, it's a luxury problem. Uh, okay, we can say it's just 3% of emissions worldwide, but then how many people fly regularly? It's just also not fairly or e- evenly distributed. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a small mm-hmm. group of people that overconsumes their share of mm-hmm. emissions that we would have if we would uh, think in terms of climate neutrality. Yeah, And then yeah. uh, with these CO2 emissions, I mean, very often the statistics don't show the non-CO2 effects. Because if we take a flight, only one third of emissions are really from CO2. Uh, the rest of the climate impact comes from other greenhouse gases and also comes from water vapor, from these condensation, uh, condensation stripes that we see. Right? They also have a climate effect. Uh, and uh, we don't, we can't really quantify them exactly, but we assume that this is uh, 50 to 60% or even more of the climate impact of a flight. Oh, wow. Okay. Gotcha. So, so using, let me just maybe jump, jump ahead a little bit here since we're in that flying topic and super, uh, important, sort of interesting to me. Um, so if we would replace, let's say kerosene with, um, something else that is more sustainable or at least comes is better, um, assuming flights are going to stay there, right? Sort of, we still fly, the flat, the plane is still going to leave. Are you saying that even with those, let's say, sustainable aviation fuels or something else, um, you would still have that other 50% of emissions anyway? I'm not sure if something like sustainable aviation fuels really exists. I, I know this is now <laughs> a big, I'm, just, I'm using a the big, term yeah. that everybody's using, right? Sort of this <laughs> yeah, SAF, but, but let, let's just, that, that's why I said an alternative to kerosene, would it still yeah. um, create those other emissions? Yeah, I still have to rant about sustainable aviation fuels. Yeah, I know there is this oh, term. Me, me. <laughs> the, they're called sustainable aviation fuels. I'm not sure if they're sustainable. Yeah, uh, Because uh, how do we get there? We, we have uh, a couple of um, mm, ways to have so-called sustainable aviation fuels. One is to use residuals uh, of, I don't know, food like old oil and stuff. Uh, I've seen they, Lufthansa they, is, is, is uh, doing a big PR when you're at uh, Frankfurt Airport or something. They say, hey, we're flying with uh, frying oil. Yeah, from, frying oil. Yeah. From, yeah. <laughs> how, how much is in there? How much frying oil do we have to, to really fuel planes? I mean, I was thinking talking... like if every plane would fly on frying oil, like how many fries do we have to eat <laughs> so that we... they can use, reuse fly frying oil? I, yeah. I doubt that we can eat that many fries. Rico. I agree. <laughs> every, we shouldn't. Since... For, your, for our own health sake, we shouldn't. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's not only frying oil, right? There's other you know, biofuels, but then for biofuels, we need a lot of agricultural land. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have this mm-hmm. competition also to food production. 
and we would How need about a lot the of synthetic land. ones. What about yeah. the synth synthetic ones where they use uh, solar or sort of um, solar energy to, to yeah. produce? Synthetic fuels, e-fuels are also a topic, but we also know that they are not very efficient. Like uh, we need a lot of electricity, mm -hmm. and um, we would need a lot of renewable electricity. That this makes sense in overall, but mm -hmm. then actually. If, I mean, we know our electricity mix uh, globally. We are far from having a renewable electricity mix. And mm -hmm. I would argue that, uh, okay, we have to decarbonize the electricity system, but we should also also wisely use that electricity. And right. to generate very inefficient e-fuels, I don't think this is a wise way of uh, I mean, using it. Everybody's talking about um, hydrogen as being part of sort of transporting the energy mm. from one place to the other or sort of ammonia or mm. sort of other, other other ways to do it because the Sahara and some countries, they have a lot mm. of sun, but you know, there's also downsides to that. But at the same time, because it's so hot over there, but um, we can't transport that over wires. Right? Mm. So it would, would take too many wires to basically take energy from, from let's say Morocco all the way up to Germany. Um, could that be, but would, you know, I, I think it's a good solution mm. to say, Hey, we synthesize uh, aviation fuel to replace the kerosene. At least it's a good start or sort of an attempt to solution. Could that be sort of maybe the right? I mean, we would need a, a lot of synthetic fuels and mm -hmm. it needs infrastructure around the world because you're not flying just from Germany. You know, you're flying from Germany to, to New Zealand and then you need that down there too to basically get it back, right? Instead of hydrogen, might that be a solution to say like, oh, let's, let's transport or do you see it? I mean, hydrogen is also very inefficient in terms of energy, but if you have an overflow of renewable energy in one place, would that make sense to you to at least take that and, and produce it and mix it into kerosene to as much as we can? Uh, I mean, yes, e-fuels and hydrogen, it, it makes sense. Uh, and it especially makes sense where we cannot really do the other um, solutions like batteries, like airplanes mm -hmm. on batteries. Uh, I think this, this is a difficult one. So here, indeed, hydrogen and e-fuels are solutions, but we mm -hmm. also need to think of how uh, far can we scale it up? Can you, we really uh, run the entire current fleet of airplanes on e-fuels and hydrogen? And how much energy yeah. would we need for that? And I think this hints a little bit at um, the limitations to technological solutions. Yes, mm -hmm. we have technological solutions, but technology alone will also not solve our problems. I mean, you mentioned before, if we now replace uh, kerosene with, with e-fuels, right? Is this better for the climate? Uh, yes, it is. But we might still have the topic with condensation stripes. There's, by the way, mm -hmm. also approaches to reuse them because uh, you can have different flight routes and uh, you only fly in certain weather conditions, which also makes the stripes okay. then uh, less effective. So there are solutions to that. But the point is, the solution is not purely technological. We need to consider the behavioral side as well. Let's assume we have uh, a technology that allows us to fly yeah. with just 50% climate impact. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really help us if we then with good conscience fly three times as much. 100%. Okay, I fully agree <laughs> with that. I mean, thanks for bringing it back. We went a little, <laughs> went a little bit on a tangent there uh, on the technology side. Apologies for that. But for, for um, you, you're right. When it comes to, let's say, my own decisions, I'd rather take one flight a year instead of two, <laughs> not... Uh, that be the right direction to go rather than, ah, oh, it's all sustainable now. It's all e-fields now. Let me just fly five times uh, a year. Uh, or instead of flying to, I don't know, the Mediterranean from Europe, I'm flying to float the Caribbean. Um, mm. What are, I mean, you, you mentioned it before, we shouldn't compare 
different things on where we can save um, energy or save save CO two. Um, I've I've hear I'm hearing the excuse at least in political discussions here in Switzerland a lot that we're too small. Like what you know what what kind of impact does Switzerland have if India and China um, are just pumping out CO two um, like like the US does? Uh, what do you what do you have to say for that excuse? Mm-hmm. What ca- should should I care as as sort of a small country? I mean that's the tricky situation with climate change. Um, nobody is causing it alone and every single contribution is small. Every single country, no matter how big, has a small contribution. I recently read uh, like how much degrees of warming can be um, traced back to single countries. And even the US as a, as a main polluter is responsible mm-hmm. for only, I think, please please don't nail me down on this number, but I think it was 0.3 or 0.4 degree of, of warming or less, right? Mm-hmm. So every single contribution is small. The Swiss contribution is small. The Chinese contribution is also small <laughs> if we put this into the global perspective. Mm-hmm. So is this now a reason uh, not to act? If we take this as a reason not to act, then this logic actually will not allow us to get anywhere with climate protection. So I think we also need a shift in perspective here. The question should not be, what should the others do? The question should be, what can we do and how can we take others along uh, so mm-hmm. that we work on a uh, yeah, a sustainable future. I know this might sound a little bit naive and it's definitely tricky, but pointing fingers at others will not solve the problem. Yeah. And, and how would you recommend that? So how can we, ch- uh, what, what's your, what's your tip for changing sort of that kind of mindset from, from just wanting to be environmentally friendly, but finding enough excuses not to be to wanting, um, sort of that li- so, or want to, to 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 basically living that that lifestyle mm-hmm. i mean in general these excuses are always more convenient it's always easy to not change anything and then find justifications for it than mm-hmm. really making a change but then uh, if we really reflect on it we might find that okay if we don't want to do something then these excuses come in very handy if we truly want something and if we want to live in a livable future for us and uh, also having a livable future for our uh, kids and grandkids, mm-hmm. then actually we, we don't need excuses, right? Uh, we need a uh, motivation. We need a reason. And we know from psychological research that people, if they really want something, don't need many reasons. They very often just need one reason. And I always invite people to ask themselves, what is your reason? to contribute to a climate-friendly future. And if you can answer this question for yourself, then suddenly also all these difficult behaviors become more easy, right? And all these excuses mm-hmm. seem less appealing. Yeah, makes makes sense. So in a way, going back to my gym example, the fact that I'm actually going to the gym is already good for good, good habit to have. But me realizing that you know, part of that journey to the gym is already sort of my warm up or sort of my cool down. Um, it's sort of incorporating that into motivations like why well, I'm actually going to the gym for health reasons, et cetera, et cetera. So reducing, redu- sort of changing that system um, to bike ride is actually beneficial to two things, um, not just being climate friendly, but also being more, more healthy.
And and you uh, raise an important point here. Uh, with climate change and respective behaviors, we always have the problem that we don't get a direct feedback. If you work right, out right. more, you feel it. You feel more healthy. You feel stronger. If you eat mm -hmm. healthier, you also feel it. But if you behave climate friendly, you don't see an effect on the climate tomorrow or next week or not even next year. And um, it's very difficult for us to, to deal with such situations where we lack this direct feedback. Mm -hmm. So we need to find the feedback somewhere else. And this can happen via co-benefits that you mentioned, right? I yeah. engage more in active mobility. It's also good for my health. Mm -hmm. But uh, it can also happen by other things. For example, by doing things together with other people. Right? If I cook my vegan meal alone uh, at home in my small kitchen, and maybe I'm not a good cook, it doesn't taste good, uh, I don't feel a lot of self-efficacy there. But if I do this together with other people, we have this vegan Saturday party, right? We together uh -huh. try new recipes. The experience is a totally different one. Yeah, 100%. It's when you say vegan, uh, often it's sort of a trick word for some people, <laughs> um, it is. but it's, it's staggering to see how some of my grandparents, they've, uh, or so just my, or my parents, they ate meat, I think once a week. Um, and it was sort of the grandfather who had get, got half of the steak and then all the kids, um, got the rest of it and had to split the, the, the second half of the steak. Um, I'm not sure how often they had fish, to be honest, but I, I think I think when it comes down to sort of our our day to day consumption, we we we're eating so much of that nowadays, and it's just in everything. It's just been, I think, become very convenient too, uh, very cheap, uh, a lot cheaper than than 50 years ago, and 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 very very convenient uh, because it's mostly prepared stuff that we eat sort of when it comes to eat, to um, to these products. Is it okay to just be like less? of a carnivore or do you have to go fully vegan like for me i cannot think eating vegan um i enjoy vegan meals um as you say i think it's a good idea just also trying out recipes but i i, I really want to eat steak do you should i still exist in this society <laughs> I, or or is it okay to do this like once a week <laughs> i think we need to be pragmatic here uh we will uh -huh. not uh, save the climate with uh radically measures that alienate all people, uh, telling mm -hmm. people you should not eat anymore. I mean, you can imagine the reaction, right? <laughs> Even exactly. among people who have a environmental mind, this, this might be a difficult one. Now, what I'm saying is, of course, when we have these charts where it says vegan lifestyle and vegetarian lifestyle, I mean, mm -hmm. this is just to compare uh, the average impacts. I'm not telling anybody to stop eating meat. Uh, I mean, this yeah. is a personal choice. And if you want to have your dead animal on your plate, okay, who am I to, to tell oh, you otherwise? <laughs> yeah, sort of ethical and moral implications mm -hmm. uh, aside, right? Sort of on top, mm -hmm. they, they come on top of that to fully understand. I mean, mm -hmm. my, my, one of my sons, he's basically not eating meat just because he doesn't want animals to be killed. And I, you know, to totally respect that. Is, is, the, um, is there a sustainable way of producing meat? Like, can we do, so is there a long, no, I'm just, we're, we're, so from, uh, Thomas from Austria, I'm from Switzerland. <laughs> Our political system is dominated by the agricultural industry and we have a lot of pushback uh, on, on, on those topics. So hence my question, there's a lot of new styles of doing mm. sustainable agriculture, or I mean, I'm not sure what the English term is there, but the, is, is, is that, oh, do cows and other, for, other animal farm animals basically contribute to a sustainable way of uh, farming in your point of view 
I mean, just I guess we should just then eat the cow that dies and not basically breeding them. But that that aside, like, is is, is there a way of uh, should we? I mean, that's the argument in Switzerland a lot. Like, we need cows for a lot of things. Mm. Is there a sustainable way of producing? I, I mean, it depends how you define sustainable in this case. But uh, mm -hmm. meat production always is more energy intense and emission intense than producing the same amount of proteins from plant. Yeah, so yeah. so that's a fact. But also, by the way, by plants and grains, uh, some of them are also not very good uh, for climate. Rice, for example, rice uh, is normally coming from a lot of methane emissions. Uh, it's, it's not so good. But uh, general rule is that uh, basically eating the plants ourselves is more efficient than feeding animals with plants, uh, raising them and then eating them. Yeah, so, so it's right. always the plant solution is just a more environment and climate friendly. Uh, yeah. But it, I mean, okay, it's, so it's, if, it's if still really a question the of the mix. Yeah, it's still yeah, a question yeah. of the mix. Yeah, of, of course, we can mm -hmm. have cows and I think we, sh we should have cows. It's part of our cultural heritage. I'm not saying uh, to get rid of all cows. No, but, no, no, uh, but I it, mean, and they also produce manure that they can reuse for certain yes. things. And otherwise they have to buy it and it has to be shipped from, I don't know, from a, from a chemical plant. I guess that's also not ideal. Um, yeah, yeah. From elsewhere. Also because we don't use uh, human uh, manure, so to say, because we're not doing that. <laughs> Should we? <laughs> I'm, Should I'm not we? getting into this Actually? discussion, but uh, this seems to be a taboo. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. Uh, I mean, on, on, a, on a separate note, since we're already uh, in the toilet of our house right now, um, one of the most absurd things to me, honestly, is that we flush our toilets with drinkable water. Mm. It's just something like it just tells me we have too much of it still um until we get to the point where we don't have enough water anymore we might rethink um that that in particular i mean at least in switzerland mm. it's it's staggering how many uh freshwater fountains we have um zurich alone i think has like two thousand fountains that run all day i mean we definitely have you know i mean the water would otherwise just flow down the river i mean it's it's mm. it's not it's not we're not wasting water in that sense but it just shows how we're we still have enough water to do things like that back to sort of the toilet that's yeah. ridiculous it, honestly it shows how privileged we are in countries like austria and switzerland uh, and we should also mm -hmm. be aware that a very large share of the population globally does not have this luxury yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. um let's explore a little bit um also the psychology um, and make it a little bit more personal for you. So tell us a little bit about how you how you have changed um, sort of your behavior and what was difficult for you particularly. I mean, of course, I also had my excuses for a long time. So when I'm uh, describing them in my book, a lot of the anecdotes come from What's myself, right? <laughs> Tell I mean, us, tell us. No, the problem is that now, uh, having worked with um, excuses for so long, I don't believe them anymore. So oh, if okay. I now would take a car to tennis court, then I would very mm -hmm. well know that it's just a very foul excuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, what have I changed? Um, I became a vegetarian a couple of years ago. I think it was the mm -hmm. first January of 2020. Mm -hmm. And the, the story behind was that during the Christmas break, I saw a Netflix documentary. I think game change as it was called it was about vegan athletes and i thought okay uh -huh. if these guys that are so strong and perform so well can go on a vegan diet i could at least try a vegetarian diet and mm -hmm. i was a carnivore before so like 10 years ago i would eat meat three times uh, per day even mm -hmm. uh, but back then so in 2020 i already had reduced my meat consumption and then i said okay let's try it and i'm from a catholic country right we have this uh, 
fastening period before Easter. So I thought, um, okay, let's try until Easter. And I did not eat meat. And at Easter, like in April, beginning of April, in the middle of the pandemics, I tried uh, one piece of meat again and I hated it. I could not oh, wow. eat it. It was so sour. It was salty. It, it was really a good piece of meat, right? By objective mm -hmm. standards, but it mm -hmm. was not for me anymore. And then mm -hmm. I thought, okay, why would I force myself now to start eating meat again when I have discovered in the meantime so many tasty, delicious alternatives? Yeah. And I just did not eat meat anymore. And it was not difficult, by the way, right? And I don't see it as, I don't even see it as like uh, stepping back from something. I see it as an explorative journey into a world of delicious foods <laughs> that I have embarked on and I really love it. Yeah, I was for, I, for, I was forced once um, for a week to, to eat vegan for a week. I mean, forced, like it was my decision, but the, the, the cuisine available was only vegan. Um, and it just opened sort of my, my blow my mind sort of uh, how, how delicious um, that food actually can be. I think I just went to the wrong restaurants previously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I always say that it tasted really pale, but um, no, this was, I, I can totally empathize with, with the, the vegetarian vegan side that there's just so many options and we're limiting ourselves. I think it's depending on the culture, depending on where you are, you are in the world, it's sort of rice or pasta or starch mm. basically on one side, and then you have the meat part and then it's just a vegetable. It's never going to be, it's very, very seldom. It's actually a, a, a vegetarian or sort of a, a, a vegetable based dish mm. that can be so flavorful. Um, but you mentioned pro plant protein before, and now when you switched and basically didn't like, like the taste any, uh, anymore, what actually keeps coming up in my mind, and maybe that's another excuse, is that there is still certain health benefits to um, eating meat because, let's say, there's iron in beef or there's other things. Like, what, what, what's, the, what's, what's, what's the excuse <laughs> around that? Help me with that. I, I can only talk about my blood uh, values or how do you call it? Like a, yeah, yeah. I did the uh, so blood tests. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my so the markers in your blood. Yeah, all the markers are better. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Oh, really? So, so from my perspective, going back for, from meat to vegetarian, so I have a few milk products still in my diet. Uh, mm -hmm. It had a huge uh, health impact. I also wasn't sick yeah. for a long time. Um, or I think I'm uh, less sick. Also, my allergies are gone. Uh, so I, I feel, oh, yeah. I mean, it could be a coincidence, right? But I feel a lot of positive impacts and yeah. side effects uh, from this diet. How, how much is, sort of, we, we haven't talked about dairy. We talked about cows mm. being killed, but let's talk about dairy real quick. Mm. Uh, where, where is that on the spectrum of really, really bad to sort of um, shouldn't shouldn't be doing it at all? In terms of climate impact or in terms yeah, of yeah. addiction? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, climate impact, climate yeah, impact. dairy products are also not particularly good. It always depends on the production circumstances. Uh, but I talked first about this one ton of CO2 for flying to Dublin and back. Uh, mm. If we translate this into kilograms of beef that you can eat, we talk about 40 to 80 kilograms of beef or 130 mm -hmm. to 150 kilograms of cheese from uh, cow milk. So, so Maybe that's that how we can get Swiss people to fly less. We just basically make them choose between flying and cheese. Like, yeah, okay, you have to it. give up all the cheese <laughs> and you could take two flights or, you know, just, uh, no, that's, that's, uh, okay. That's good to know. Mm. Um, I'm going to maybe, um, bringing us back a little bit to sort of the tangible tips here. Maybe you can bring in a few of your personal mm -hmm. experiences here, here as well. Um, I'm going to screen share, um, the graph that I mentioned before again, 
um, maybe just for you to, uh, for, for, for also for your guidance. Um, can you walk us a little bit through this graph again and, mm -hmm. and give us some tips also maybe from your personal experience? Yes. Um, so this graph, we posted it on LinkedIn uh, September last year, 22. Mm -hmm. And it was viewed 700,000 times. So it's by far mm -hmm. the most successful thing we have ever done. <laughs> it really went viral because people can relate to it and people mm -hmm. can also discuss uh, about it uh, because everybody finds themselves in there and would have a different uh, perception of difficulty. Um, so we have these high impact behaviors like no flights uh, and uh, they seem to be very difficult for a lot of people. How can I still stop flying? I mean, what I did is I committed myself to it. At least I committed myself to not fly below a thousand uh, kilometers. Mm -hmm. And actually I also uh, committed myself to not fly for conferences anymore, like scientific conferences and making this commitment just for yourself already helps. Mm -hmm. Making this commitment with uh, people who witness it helps even more. And for me, I'm now traveling a lot on train. I'm giving presentations. I'm showing this chart. If I fly to these events, I would not be credible. So it's very easy right. for me to just not the fly. The first question, how do you get here? <laughs> yeah, it's always <laughs> the train. And it's very often when I go to Germany, it's a very long journey, mm -hmm. especially with the German uh, Bundesbahn. You might know that. Uh, you. Probably yes, should not expect to arrive. Really. Yeah, you should not expect to arrive in Berlin at uh, 1800. You should arrive, uh, you should expect to arrive in the north sometime this week. Maybe with this managing of expectations, uh, <laughs> it works better. <laughs> no, but maybe mm -hmm. I'm being unfair. Uh, so yeah, uh, living car free is also a topic and mm -hmm. that's a tough one. Actually, I also thought it's very difficult because I'm a countryside guy mm -hmm. and when my car broke down last um, last fall, yeah, it was also around October or so, I didn't have a car anymore. And I found mm -hmm. out, okay, actually, it seems to work. Uh, there are buses. I can take my bike sometimes to places I have never been before, also on bike tours where otherwise would maybe have taken a car to a mountain. Uh, and for really for, for the situations where you need a car, there's car sharing at least mm -hmm. in cities like Graz, where I'm based. So uh, I also, maybe living car-free is still tough, but not owning a car is not as difficult as we would assume. Hmm. It depends on where you are in the world, again. Yes, right? so of course. Very pri of privileged course. without public transport. I, I fully agree. Like The Swiss railway company um, has a sort of a partnership with another non-profit that basically puts car-sharing cars mm -hmm. at every train station, which makes it super... Yes, that's easy great. for them to think about sort of how you, you know, you just need to figure out how to get to the train first, but then wherever you arrive, you don't have an excuse to say, oh, you know, I'm going to a business meeting that is like 20 kilometers away from the train mm. station. You definitely have an option there and it's, it's fairly cheap. Um, yeah. Fairly cheap too. Same in Austria. Well, say, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, it's really, it's really, I think it's a good combination, um, you know, to, to, to take those hurdles out of the way because it's going to be harder for me to, if I have to drive one or one and a half hours um that's also tall on me like you know it's sort of you're you're a little more stressed mm. than in a train you're, it, it is actually a better solution overall after sort of given a certain length of the trip that you um that you can combine mobility solution with each other um for sort of um 
what, what else? Sorry, I interrupted you. So we got cruise ships. We got it like uh, going from car. Well, we went car light, sort of from down from two cars to one. In our family, sort of going car free would be ideal. Um, what else is it? Is it okay to um, same as flying, sort of reducing everything a little bit, or sort of overall? Would that be the right way to go, or do you think there should be definitely something should eliminate? I mean. What you do as an individual, I mean, maybe you have to figure out for yourself and everybody has to figure out for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, I mm -hmm. think what uh, was, what was not, not in that chart and what we also should, of course, include is maybe working on structures, right? We had this uh, topic before that very often we don't have the uh, structures and then we blame politics and businesses, right? Mm -hmm. And it can be quite difficult, but uh, we also, by our actions, we always contribute to existing structures. So The paths emerge by walking them. I'm not sure if this mm -hmm. translates so well into English, but there's a nice <laughs> German saying on that. And um, I uh, invite... Yeah. In, my, in my head, I just saw this usability. So there's a picture going viral every every few years where I see like they made two paved walks sort of in a, in a, in a queue, mm -hmm. but then everybody's walking over the grass because it's shorter. Um, and you can see the actual... The, the one that the one path uh, that they should have built instead of mm. two, they could have just built one in a direct line. That's what you mean, right? Sort of, it's it's often yeah. our actions that yeah. are a lot more important than what we think is the right way to go. Yeah, and at the moment we have this discussion about individualizing the blame, right? Individual footprints uh, in invented by some oil company, and mm -hmm. there's criticism on that, on this individualization. And I agree to this criticism to a certain degree. But it does not mean that I as an individual cannot do anything, mm. right? Uh, I think we should not uh, make it an either or. We always have to make it an end. Yes, sure. we do need structures. We need politically circumstances that favor climate-friendly behaviors. But we also need the mindsets on individual level and the willingness to maybe go ahead and also show what can be done and serve mm -hmm. as an example. We need both. I would love, sort of, as as, as your as your next um, sort of as your next book to to be focused on on that. Like, how can I connect my goals and my motivation to those behavioral changes? That'd be that'd be super interesting um, because it's it's still you describe it. I understand what, what he's saying, but it's still extremely hard for them mm -hmm. to individualize it and basically say to make it make it work for make make it work for me. I think the flying, the car, mm -hmm. um, the meat. It's sort of, it's clear what it should be for, for at least sort of personal opinion, right? Sort of, uh, sort of, I, I see what I should be doing, but then connecting it to the, to the real, um, avoiding those hard decisions, making the clear decisions is sort of how to make it easier with the motivation that you mentioned earlier. Wonderful. Um, Thomas, thanks so much for taking your time uh, this morning. I, do you want to leave us with sort of just a generic, uh, do, do you want to leave us with, um, just a general tip on avoiding avoiding those difficulties and and how we should think. Sort of maybe this is a very sim Do you have a simple way to to see the framework in that regard? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think uh, it's a lot about mindset on the individual level, and it's about also to think about how we figure out things together. So I also don't really like to always give the tips, right? So and you should do that, mm -hmm. and you should do this, because mm -hmm. uh, everybody's living reality is slightly different. And my living reality is different from, from yours. And our living reality is different from a lorry driver who works on the countryside or a coal miner that have totally different topics and challenges mm -hmm. in, in their lives mm -hmm. and maybe don't even bother about climate change because they have enough other worries. So 
I think when it comes to our climate-friendly future, it really is about to figure out how we manage to do it together as a society, right? And the question is uh, not what should the others do, but what can I contribute to that? Wonderful. Well, that's a great, uh, great finish um, to our conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. Um, please subscribe and give us a, a, a five-star review, if you may, or just let us know in your comments what you're thinking. Um, give us some feedback. We'd love to improve. Really appreciate you listening and going to see you next week. Thank you, Thomas, and thanks, everyone. Thank you.